Well, listen, guys, um, <clears throat> we're going to have some time for worship at the end of uh, the service today, but I just wanted to share something that's, that's been on my heart for some time, and um, uh, this uh, opportunity uh, of sharing out of uh, Matthew chapter 12 is going to give me that opportunity to share what I want to share out of that passage. And uh, one, of the, one of the cool things about having an old pastor is that your pastor has seen some things through the years. And um, I want to share one. I don't, I don't know if I've ever really talked about this with you, but I, I want to talk to you about some things that I've seen in my lifetime that are rather unique, rather different, challenging, um, and, I, and I hope that they'll be hopeful for you. Um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. The world changed, literally. You'd have to have been there to know how much the world changed from 1965 to 1975. It was um, monumental as, as our nation uh, goes. Uh, the greatest music in the world, in my opinion, came out of that era. Um, the Beatles came to America in the... In, what, 1962, 63, something like that. Um, that changed everything. Um, then uh, it was, a, it was a, a time of turmoil. Uh, we had all kinds of, of rioting and, and, and just disruption in our society. Um, and uh, it, it was just a, a different time. Um, the, the greatest and coolest cars in the world came out of that time. Uh, time period. The uh, yesterday, I was driving down the road. Pam and I were headed somewhere, and this '67 uh, Chevelle Super Sport passed me, and I almost ran off the road. I mean, just amazing cars, and and, and it, it was just a, a different time. And and there was a world in 1960, and there was a world in 1970. And it was, those were two different worlds. I've never seen anything like it since then. Yeah, we've had a lot of advancements and changes and technology and all of the things that have happened. And, and yes, you know, when muscle cars came out, there was no, no such thing as cell phones. And, you know, I get all that. But I'm talking about a major cultural move. And it happened in that time frame. But there was something else that happened during that time that I really want to talk about because it really leads itself to where I want to go today. In this time of great change and upheaval and rebellion and the drug culture and all, and you know, the sexual revolution, everything that was taking place in the United States, there was another revolution that took place. It was a spiritual revolution. It was like something that You've never seen before. I had never seen it. And as I study it and I think about it, I, I realize that this happens every 40 to 60 years, or it has happened historically in our nation, every now and then. And what makes it so unique is it has nothing to do with the plans of mankind. It was nothing that man did. It was truly what happened in this time period. And I didn't realize it when it was happening. I look back on it now and I see, oh my heavens. That was a move of God, and it was out of control, literally. There wasn't anybody leading it. There wasn't anybody controlling it. There wasn't anybody who, who managed it. It was a God thing. 
Now, the earliest that I remember anything happening in this movement, this last movement that I, I was able to witness, was in the mid-60s at Duquesne University, which is a Catholic university, um, there was this incredible spiritual awakening that took place in that school. And it happened, it started in a chapel service, and, and this, you know, it was a, a staunch Catholic environment. It wasn't like, like it was anything, you know, they weren't like seeking God or anything, but there was a pouring out of God's Spirit in that campus that just shook literally the world. People who, who were religious but didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ were sitting in these meetings and they began to weep. They began to sense something and feel something they'd never felt before. There were people in these meetings, they would just show up and, and the thing went on for weeks and months and then years. They, they would be there and they would be deathly ill and instantly be healed. It was, it was so out of control. Out of that came um, just this, this wave of, of, of a revival in the Catholic Church. It spread to the Anglican Church. Uh, many of you are very familiar with Truro Episcopal Church. Uh, my wife and I, Pam and I, actually went to church there. We didn't know each other. We went there at the same time. We never met there. Uh, otherwise, we'd have gotten married a lot sooner. But she was spiritually dead and not, not paying attention. I don't know what. Anyway, um, what happened at Truro came out of Duquesne University. It was, it, it, it was a God thing. There was another lady, her name is, was Catherine Kuhlman, a very weird person, frankly. If you've ever seen any of her videos or anything, she was a very strange person. She was also out of the Pittsburgh area, but God did something in and through her that was like off the charts. She... Um, she was an evangelist. She had a sketchy past. I mean, there was a whole lot of things going on there. But she began to teach God's Word, and people would come to these meetings, and, and, and people were literally, physically, visibly healed in these meetings. You could watch it happen. And it was like off the charts. It was like, where is this coming from? What in the world is going on? It was, it, you know, and, and there were a lot of cyn cynics. I was one of them. My dad was one of them. And we're like, this is all made up. This is, you know, because we'd never seen anything like this. So my dad, um, I was in high school. My father had a terrible back problem. I mean, he could not walk. It was so bad. And every night he would sit in this traction thing and it would literally just be pulling at his back to pull the discs apart. I don't know if that was good for him or bad for him, but... Then the next day he could get around a little bit. It was terrible. And, and, and they were scheduling him for all kinds of surgeries and all kinds of stuff. So a friend of his said, look, we need to, we need to go to the Catherine Kuhlman thing. Well, my dad knew about this. And he said, I'm not going there. Those people are crazy. That woman is crazy. And, and, but this guy talked my dad into it. And, and so they go and he takes my dad into the, the building. They sit down. 
And Catherine Coleman comes out and she's talking and then she invites all the people who need healing to come up front. So the guy says to my dad, you need to go up front. And he's, I'm not going up there. And the guy, he just takes him and he pulls him up there. And so Catherine Coleman is walking down the aisle of this, this building and as she prays for people, she doesn't even touch them. They just fall over. I don't know what's wrong with them, right? Yeah, you know, my dad's telling me a story. They're just falling over. Well, my dad's like, I am not doing that. And so he plants his feet. And she walks by, and he doesn't fall over. So she comes back. And she puts her hand on him and prays for him. And he's like this. And like, I will not fall. I will not fall. And he doesn't. And he limped out of there, and he went home. The next morning, he had a dentist appointment. He goes to the dentist. His back is killing him. The dentist does whatever he has to do. My dad walks out of the dentist's office, down the stairs to the street, slips on some ice, and falls on his back. And and his story is, God spoke to him and said, Look who's laying down now, dude. And he stood up, and he was instantly healed. He hasn't had back problems until last year, but he's 91. He deserves to have some back problems. But what happened with Catherine Kuhlman had a great impact on a man by the name of Chuck Smith, who some of you know started Calvary Chapel. Um, Out of that came the hippie... Jesus movement from the West Coast, which spread all the way to the East Coast. Now we're up into 1969, 1970. Um, Jesus people culture out of Chicago started out of that. Uh, the Jesus festivals, 20, 30,000 people at 10 different festivals across the nation were coming together. It was a powerful move of God's Spirit, and nobody was leading this. It was just happening. People were just trying to keep up with it and follow it. And, and, and it was just such an amazing time. There are people today all over the world in ministry because of what happened in 1970, 1971. There was um, uh, Lauren Cunningham uh, is a name. Uh, what was, what's the ministry that he started? YWAM, Youth with a Mission. That's right. The guy off the charts. You know, just, they, they have just changed the world. And, um, in fact, I think uh, Megan Skirkanich is headed to uh, Australia with YWAM. I, it's still going on. This is still happening. It, 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 it even found me. I was a youth pastor for my dad. And I had 12, people called them disciples, they were incorrigibles. And... They didn't love Jesus, they didn't love me, they didn't love anything, anybody. And I, that was my job, you know, to win them to Jesus and do something. We had these youth services on, on, on Tuesday nights. Every Tuesday night, these people would show up for the, the service, and it was awful. And then one night, 50 young people who I'd never met showed up. And they wanted to have church. And I was like shocked, just shocked. And they were a mess. And so, you know, we just, we normally sat in a circle, you know, it was a small group. Now I got 50 new people in the group. So I'm like, what's going on? 
What happened? Where are you coming from? Well, these were young people who had gotten high, went to the movies, saw a movie called Late Great Planet Earth, which was about Jesus and the gospel, and they all got saved. And they just, somebody told them, well, you need to go see Greg. And they showed up. And one guy literally said, he goes, we don't really know what to do. We thought we'd come here. We don't know if we need to get stoned again and go back to the theater. We don't know what's going on. That's what I started with. By the time the thing really grew, we had about as many people there as we have here today. Having church, every, we changed it to Wednesday, every Wednesday night. It was amazing to see what God did. They were so excited when they heard that Stephen got stoned. Um, and I had to explain to them. That was different. It was like, you know, these guys were... But, but that all happened through this ministry of God's Holy Spirit. It was out of control. And then it went away. And here we are some 40 years later, maybe a little longer. Um, while the world was impacted... Only 4% of people in, the, in this country are solid Christ followers today. Uh, that number hasn't changed in two or three decades. What happened? Well, we had, we've had some leadership issues. We've had control issues. You know, every time God does something, man thinks we have to control it. We've got we've to manage it. We've got to, you know, and, and so ministry went back to the professionals. And I, I am self-indicting here today, to be honest with you, because what the church has done, what the leadership has done, is created a consumer, Christian consumer generation. We, wanna, we, go, we make decisions on where we're going to ch- go to church by who the pastor is, what he's teaching, how the music is. What the, it's all about what I can get. We like to sit and, and get fed. Ah, man, if I never hear that again, it'll be too soon. It'll just feed me, feed me, like, bah, bah, feed me, feed me. You know, we just, we, we got really fat getting fed, and we've just created this consumer generation in church. So that's all a big setup for what I want to talk about today. I want to read this out of Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. <clears throat> It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Now we're calling this series uh, The Four. It's about four miracles that uh, the Jewish... Uh, religious people, the Pharisees, had decided that no human being could actually perform these four miracles. And if, if somebody could perform these four miracles, then they are the Messiah. Well, the four miracles included this, uh, the healing of a leper. Nobody had ever been able to do that, and, and Brody talked about that last Sunday. Uh, today, I'm talking about the healing of someone who has a demon that causes muteness. You can't speak. And, and, and there's a reason why that's one of the four miracles. It's because 
there was a lot of exorcism back in this time. There were, because Jesus was invading this kingdom of darkness, there was so much spiritual activity, both positively and negatively, that the Pharisees had a way of actually exorcising demons from people, and they would see results. But the reason the mute demon thing was such a big deal is, the Pharisees knew that you were not allowed to to uh, speak the name of God ever, and, and the only way that you could deal with a mute demon was to to have that ability, which they couldn't do. It's kind of complicated, and, and I'm not explaining it well, but it was impossible for somebody who couldn't speak to be set free, because that person, one of the questions that had to be asked is, what is your name? And usually the demon would give its name. And then they could expel or exorcise that demon based on the name that was given. This guy couldn't say a word. So this was a big deal. And uh, the third one was healing somebody who was blind from the time of birth. And then the fourth miracle was to raise someone from the dead after they'd been dead for three days. We know Jesus, he conducted all four of these miracles. This was number two. And... This should have qualified him in the eyes of the Pharisees that, hey, this is the Messiah. So when the people said, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, they were hopeful that, whoa, he's just done two of these miracles. Could this be the guy? Now, the the problem is that Again, it was out of control. It was out of man's control. The Pharisees had control of the church. They liked being in control. They liked being in charge. They wanted to do their thing. And so Jesus, all of a sudden, was a threat. Besides that, he didn't look like a Messiah to them. He didn't, he didn't have that kingly stature. He came with humility and love and care. And so in this same chapter, back up to verse 14, you'll see that they wanted to kill him. They didn't, they didn't want to hear that he might be the Messiah. They wanted him dead. Let's read on. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. You know, I think, I think the worst sin, in my opinion, that can be committed is the sin that is committed by religious leaders when they drive a wedge between Jesus and the people who Jesus is trying to reach. I think, as we'll read through this chapter, you're going to read something about what we call the unpardonable sin. I think those two things are really tied tightly together. When a spiritual leader does something to drive a wedge between a person and the person Jesus is trying to reach, I think that's a horrible, horrible thing. Now, 
it's a little different today. I mean, back in, in Jesus' day, they were trying to prove that Jesus was a, uh, you know, filled with demons and this was all demon worship. That doesn't happen today. What happens today is this. We have uh, people who kind of water down the message of Jesus. They, they're the ones that, you know, they don't try to eradicate Jesus, they try to minimize Jesus. And so they'll say things like, well, he's a good teacher, or a great man, or a, a, a good rabbi, or, you know, there are many ways to God, and, and Jesus is one of those. Those are cultural things that get in the way, and, and it's purported by spiritual leaders, and it gets in the way of that person actually having life offered to them. I think there's another thing that religious leaders can do, Often it happens where we, and I include myself in this because I'm sure I've participated at some level in this, where, where we try to build our own kingdom. Where we try to build something that is so good and so big and, and it just, you know, it's, it's back to the thing of, of, of the consumer deal. Or if we can have the best service or we can have the best music or the best kiss, best, best kids ministry, I was going to say best kiss ministry, that would work. That'd fire you up, wouldn't it? We could, you know, but where does that leave the people? Where does all this leave the people? Write this down. You only have two things to write down in your notes today. Here's one of them. A cultural response, a, a, today's culture, a cultural response to God's work creates hopelessness. It creates hopelessness. Because the message has been thwarted, changed, compromised, whatever, people lose hope. We live with hope that there's an answer. There's an answer to evil versus good. There's an answer to life. There's a reason why we're here. Let me read on. Verse 27. Jesus goes on, he says, If I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcist? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Now, I have told you this so many times, and I will continue to tell you this. We are not living in fantasy land. We are living in a war zone. As the church, as people who know Jesus, those of you who are followers of Christ, you're in a war zone. It's between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You remember, I, I've, I've told you this, when, when, Jesus, uh, when God, God kicked out Satan and his, his powers, his dominions out of heaven, he sent them to earth. While earth was still the armpit of the universe. And then... When God decided to create the earth, he put mankind in the middle of this place, gave him a beautiful place to live, specifically to show the dominion of the power of God over the power of Satan. And we've been in that war ever since. And I just want you to know, our job as a church, our job as followers of Christ is to invade the kingdom of darkness. When Matthew 16, when, when Jesus declared the church in existence, 
It was in the worst place in, in all of Israel, probably all the world at that point, at Caesarea Philippi. And he says, you will invade the gates of hell and they can't stand up against you. That's our job. That's the church's responsibility. That's who we're supposed to be. So Jesus says, anyone who's not with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So this next thing, I want you to fill in the blank here. This is for the church. This is for Christ followers. In God's kingdom, there is no neutral zone. I want you to understand this. There's no neutral zone. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either in this or you're going backwards. I don't know, if, for those of you who are business people, there's no plateau in business, right? You're either going up or you're going down. The day you stop going up, you start going down. It's the same way in the kingdom, except the, the, the yield is much more serious. You're either moving forward in the kingdom, or you're not moving forward at all. You're going backwards. So, just, just a thought. After that, Jesus starts railing against the Pharisees. He says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. We'll talk more about that at another time. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, and just to give you a nugget here, the work of God's Spirit will never be forgiven. We're not talking about a, you know, I've, I've talked to young people a lot about this where they think, oh my gosh, I've committed the unpardonable sin. Hey, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it, okay? It's, it's, it doesn't work that way. But, but this is somebody who sets themselves up against God to destroy the work of God, and they live like that. Um, Verse 33, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes. He's talking to religious people, okay? How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this. You must give an account on Judgment Day for every idle word you speak. The word you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Being a spiritual leader is, is a, a gravity-filled situation. It is not one to be taken lightly or liberally. So, I want to come back to something, though, because in this is a forgotten story. It's kind of like this problem with the Pharisees took over the whole thing. And the real main deal, the real story, got forgotten. There were some people left out in the cold here. Now, I know what that feels like, to be left out, to be forgotten, to be not noticed. I have been working on a project for more than 30 years. I mean, it is, it's been a big deal to me. I have worked, I have maintained this thing, I have, I, you know, there are times when, when I messed it up and I got it back on track and I, I, I got everything together and I've been working. My wife didn't even like the project. She, she really hammered me about it at times. And so on June 12 of this year, I finally shaved my mustache off. That was the project. Yes. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No one noticed. 
Only three people noticed. My oldest daughter, who began to cry because she hates change. And then Brad Paul and Josiah McClure, which, that felt really awkward, frankly. I would just like to tell my wife today, honey, I shaved off my mustache. Because I don't think she knows. Or she doesn't care anymore. She got tired of... All joking aside, I've often thought about the church. You know, what if the church was like my mustache? It just disappeared and nobody really noticed. I mean, if, if our church closed and we went away this week, we would know it, right? Because we'd come next week and we wouldn't be here. But would the community around us know anything about that? Would they understand? And it's not just our church. Based on what I'm seeing in terms of the impact that the church at large is making on culture today, if any church disappeared, no matter its size, no matter whatever, if it just went away, who would notice? Probably more challenging for me is, what if I disappear? Would anybody notice? Would it, would it have any impact on the world today? So, there's a story here in this passage that I, I want to talk about. And, and it's going to go a couple different ways. I just want you to hang with me here. It says, a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. Jesus healed the man so that he could both speak and see. And the crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? First of all, this thing got so messed up. The story is so messed up that we don't hear anything more about the, the blind, mute guy. Now, I want you to just think what this might feel like because he wasn't blind when he was born. He wasn't mute. He was fine. He was, he, you know, we don't know anything about him. We, we, you know, he probably had a job. He probably had a family. You know, life was fine. It may have been hard, but it was okay. Everything was fine. And then he gets possessed by this spirit, and he is now blind, which that in itself would be horrible. But he's also unable to speak. And he knows the rules. If you can't talk, you will never be delivered from what this thing is that's bothering you. Imagine not being able to see again once you've been able to see and then not being able to talk. Can you imagine the frustration, the pain, the anger, the resentment? The, 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 you know, now he's lost his livelihood. He's probably moved from a productive citizen to, in this culture, a beggar. He probably moved from being a family guy to, I'll never see my children again. It's a story of pain. One of the things that um, we see all around us every day are desperate people, pain-filled people. And we deal with pain, don't we, at times. To have this pain-filled life 
and not have any hope is, I mean, it's, it's the worst. Jesus deals with pain. He deals with pain. Then there's, there's the other group of people that get unnoticed here. And those are the people, the, 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 the common people, the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, who watched this happen. And they're thinking, maybe this guy is him. And understand, these are people who have been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for hope all their lives and for hundreds of years before they even were on the face of the earth. They needed hope. They needed a Messiah. They were dealing, especially after the Pharisees got in touch with them, they were dealing now with doubt. You have people who are pain-filled. Now you have people who have doubt. These are God followers and they have doubt. And let me just throw this in here because it's important for us to understand. We sometimes think, if you have doubts, I'm talking serious doubts about is God real? Is this stuff all real? Is it, you know, did this really happen? And, you know, we have those and we don't want to bring them up because it seems like that means you don't have faith. And I'd like to throw this back at you because I don't believe you can have strong faith if you haven't had strong doubt. You need doubt. To help you build faith. I love what Tim Keller says. He, he, he says, imagine that you're on a cliff and you've fallen off the cliff. And there's a branch that's hanging on the side of the cliff. What do you do? You grab for it with all of your life. And here's what he writes. He goes, weak faith in a strong object is infinitely better than strong faith in a weak object. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, that saves you. Let me say that part again. It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, that saves you. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to wonder. Listen, Anybody that tells you they have it figured out, they're messed up. They don't have it all figured out. But as Tim Keller says, Jesus deals with doubts. It's the object of your faith. He's the object of our faith. We don't need to have a whole lot of strength to experience the freedom that Jesus provides for us. But this all gets lost in this story of religiosity, right? Because all the, you know, the Pharisees, oh, no, this is not the guy. This couldn't be. In fact, we're going to kill him. We're going to take him out. And, and by the way, he gets all his power from demons. And, and so it's the church that messes the people up. It's the, it's the Pharisees, the religious leaders that gets in people's heads and, and we forget about the people in pain and we forget about the people who are having doubts and Jesus is trying to show us that He cares about both. I, I don't know if you've... Uh, I, I love this analogy. I, I love to read and I've, I've read a lot of stuff through the years. Um, there's a 
author, uh, Dorothy Sayers, who wrote a series of books back in the 20s, 1920s and up through the, the 40s, called um, uh, Lord Peter uh, Whimsy. Anybody ever read any of, uh, a few of you? Pretty cool stuff. It was like the, the, um, the birth of the British gentleman detective. Lord Peter uh, Whimsy was this amazing detective. And Dorothy Sayers was writing, and she wrote, wrote novel after novel. It was on BBC not too long ago. They had a whole series on, on his novels and, and the story, the backstory. And um, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was so, it's kind of weird, actually. Dorothy Sayers, the author, created this man, you know, Lord Peter, and, and um, she kind of fell in love with him. He was... He was so awesome. He was handsome. And, and they, they talk about this. You can go on Wikipedia and read this. It, it's probably based on some guy. And, you know, we don't know. But, but she needed, she, she just had this desire to be with this fictional character. And so the way she dealt with that is she created another fictional person, Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane uh, met Peter and... and uh, Married him, and they lived happily ever after. It's the only time that's ever happened. And, um, but when you think about that, that's really what God has done for us. You see, we, he couldn't connect with us. He is the author and, of everything. He is the creator of everything. There's such a divide between you and me and God. It's, 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 it's an, you know, you can't cross that gulf. And so what... God did is he wrote a character into earth, his son, Jesus, to cross the divide. And it's for real. And this character, Jesus, this son of God, wants to deal with our pain. And he wants to deal with our doubts. And not only that, he wants us to be the church that shares that with others, that shares this great message. And really, the only way that you, that you can miss this great gift that God's given us is you choose not to accept it, not to, not to get in this. So, it kind of frames things. I think this whole story frames things perfectly for us. Where are we? Where are we with God? Where are we with, with, with allowing Him to do the things in our lives that He wants to? And then where are we as a church? Do we really, are, are, are we more like the Pharisees or are we going to be Christ's followers? I'm going to ask our band to come out and uh, we're going we're to have a time of um, worship here uh, for a little bit. But... As I read through this story and I started thinking about the past, the, the work that God did in our country in the 60s and 70s, and where I am today, I, I'm thinking I may have the distinct blessing, along with a few of you, of watching this happen twice in our nation. I think something's stirring today. I think God is doing something different. I think He's doing something different in America. The fact that 
we're not going blindly into this next generation and think that we're better than we are. The fact that we're seeing the problem, the, th- the, the fact that we know that we need God to do something that's out of control again may be just the thing we need to see God open the door. And I keep wondering if this could be another move of God that's on its way. And, and, and so I want to know if we can be the church that we read about in the New Testament. That, the, the church that could invade the gates of hell. The church who's not in, interested in building its own kingdom and becoming its own great thing and, and, and foolishly spending our talents and money on things that don't impact the world around us. That number, that 4% number haunts me day and night. And of the 96%, I've told you this a million times, I think, of the 96%, 60% of those people will never walk in a church. So if we put all of our eggs in that basket, we've knocked out more than half of the culture around us. And God's calling us for, to something different. And we can't create it, but we can ride the wave if He creates it. I want us to prepare for His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so, where I am today is, I think we need to recognize who we are, where we are, and recognize our desperate need for Jesus over and above all of our preconceived ideas of what the church looks like. And just say, Lord, I, whatever I've made this, it hasn't really been as much about you as it needs to be. See, I, I think church is not on Sundays. We've got this idea, this is church. This isn't church. Church is on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It, the church is not a building. It's not a... It, it, it's people who will take the message of Christ and turn the world upside down and invade the gates of hell. I don't care how big our churches are, how successful we think they are, the number's 4%. So, God, what do you want to do in us? What do you want to do in me?